You found it. The no-nonsense, no-script podcast you've been waiting for. Real people on real issues. Welcome to Dynamic Independence. The home of logic, reason, and common sense. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson, and I'm joined today by Bruce Adams and Marty Foster. Good evening, gentlemen. Bruce, Marty, fantastic to have you both here tonight. That's very kind of you to say so, Johnny. Thank you. Good evening, Bruce. Good evening. Let's start with you, Bruce. How are you today? I'm, you know, doing great. Uh, that's a that's a little bit of sarcasm because uh, uh, we're about to talk about a wonderful, wonderful topic today. We are, and I was just sitting here, and I was kind of, I was talking to Marty before you came in, and I said, you know, yeah, we're we're kind of, yeah, let's, we need to look at this one. We need to get get in depth on that one, and. Then you came in and made it 10 times worse in five minutes with the description that you gave me. <laughs> so it's going to be fun. Marty, how are you doing yep. today? How's your weekend been? The weekend has been very nice, very busy. But yeah, as as Bruce says, this, the topic we're about to talk on just really irritates me. It, it bugs me. We were discussing, were we not, what to call this podcast? Um, yeah. And I, I think it's United Arrogance. Is is basically United Arrogance. United Arrogance. That's good. United Arrogance. Yeah, Yeah, I like that. I like that because that's well, that's what it is, isn't it? So Mm -hmm. it is extreme arrogance that that these individuals think they are going to determine what my life looks like over the next decade and and how it's going to change, and it annoys me incredibly i want those sorts of decisions for me i don't need a global organization doing it because let's face it who trusts have have we the people got any trust at all in in these great big overbearing organizations short answer no and that's that's a fantastic point you bring up is and i was actually going to get into that later i was trying to figure out how i was going to work it in but let's kind of go ahead and intro where we're going to go with this okay so today we're going to talk about something that a lot of people haven't heard about yet but you're going to you're going to start hearing it you're going to hear something called the sustainable development agenda now see they've changed it this for those of us that studied this about 10 years ago it was called agenda 21 and this was essentially this was a a process of moving civilization across the board forward to the 21st century well we're now two decades into the 21st century. And so now everything has changed. Everything was based around climate, right? Everything was based around climate. We spoke on this a little bit yesterday. Everything was based around climate. But now with COVID, of course, this is their reset button. So now they've switched it, right? They've changed everything up. They've gone from Agenda 21, because people were getting wise to that. They've switched it up. Now it's just the Sustainable Development Agenda or as it's more commonly known as Agenda 2030. So we're going to get into this. This is a massive web of just junk. I mean, it just goes all over the place about how they're going to chart, manage, and maintain society or civilization, rather, going forward, not for one country, but for a majority of the countries around the world. So you had just posed an interesting question. You said, do we have any of these, or do we have any trust in any of these organizations? Again, the short answer is no. We don't trust national governments. And Bruce made an interesting point a couple of days ago on that. He says, well, that's what they want. I think you're onto something there, uh, both of you, because they want us to have the distrust in local, state, regional, national governments. So we then put our faith in a higher authority to run and manage things, which, to be fair, the U.N. already has no credibility anyway, which is, by the way, that's who we're talking about because that's who's going for this. We don't have any trust in that organization as it sits now, at least largely, as far as I'm aware. I mentioned it yesterday. I said these people are hated pretty much everywhere west of the Hudson. And east of the Hudson, they're losing citizens at a record pace. More than that, if we decide, okay, if things go this direction, I'm not saying if we decide because they're not even giving us a choice. If things go this direction, and I say if because there's still time to reverse this. If things go this direction, then if people become 
how do I say, non-trusting even larger than what they are now, if that number continues to grow, well, then how do you hold these people accountable? How do you remove that system if you don't want it? That's a bigger question. I mean, we have fail safes built into our democratic rule to an extent where we can vote to remove those governments. We can vote to remove those people. No one has ever, as far as I know, no one has ever voted for a single person that sits at the U.N., ever. Those are appointed people, and those are people that are dignitaries of other states and diplomats and what have you that come around from all over the world that go to that organization to argue their point. Okay, fine. You know, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm anti-cooperation here. That's not what I'm saying at all. We have to have, because of the way the world is now, it's a smaller place for sure, but we have to have a forum where world leaders can get together and talk. We need dialogue. That has to happen. But the mere fact that these people are now going to legislate, which they've been doing that for decades, no one, as far as I'm aware, from any nation, let alone Western nations, as far as I know, have ever given any kind of legislative authority to this organization ever. They're just doing it. They're, they're just doing it with impunity. And when you try to speak up about it, oh, you're you're a, uh, you know, whatever, you know, because we're in the label of identity politics or the era of identity politics. So pick your label. So you're one of those things, whatever they label you. And then, of course, if you try to go after any of these individuals, which many countries have before for one of them overstepping their bounds or breaking the law, they claim diplomatic immunity. So you can't even prosecute them. And that's now. Can you imagine how it's going to be when we start getting into this? But that's my opening. I'm trying to find out how many countries are there in the world? The I'm getting between 195 and 197 I is what the research right is showing. There. Yeah, I think it's right around. Yeah. I, I want to say it was like 196, 197, something like yeah. that. Yeah. And the United Nations has 193 member states. Uh, according to that um, font of all knowledge, the the search engine of people who haven't got the time to find a better one. So what I want to know is of these 193 countries, so you've got everything from the United States of America, Mother Russia, the United Kingdom, all the way down to Burkina Faso, yeah, uh, all these little countries. The only two countries listed that are not members are the state of Palestine and the Holy See. So the Catholic Church and the Vatican is not part of the United Nations, doesn't have mm -hmm. a say, but this is mm -hmm. fair enough because it's it's only a couple of blocks in the middle of Rome. Right. Do all member nations have equal voting rights? That's what I'd like to know. And, I, and I, I, without going through their policies, uh, I don't think I'm going to find it this evening. What I think happens within the United Nations and the decisions that go on is that the the powerful big countries that can offer the smaller countries, you know, what they need uh, in in terms of cooperation, trade, military assistance, whatever, they'll go around in a very House of Cards-like fashion and make sure that they've got all the votes they need by uh, horse trading, basically, and getting things through that way. So, you know, money talks, and that's what's happening with the UN. So I, although it's got 193 member states, how much influence do those smaller states have on the decisions of the UN? I don't know if you guys have got answers. I wouldn't expect you to have answers, but I think that's what the main problem with it is. It, on the face of it, it looks like a democratic organisation, but of course, when you've got powerful allies, you become a subject, you, you become a vassal. And, and I think that's what the majority of the 193 countries actually are. And to be fair, we know that you have uh, countries that use these organizations like this as mouthpieces. Case in point, look what the Chinese Communist Party has done with the World Health Organization. Fantastic example of that. That's their agenda. They carry that agenda. Who's to say that they don't have the same influence over the United Nations? For crying out loud, the United Nations just gave China a seat on the Human Rights Council. Hello? They've got three and a half million people that we know of in slave labor camps. And you're going to put them on the Human Rights Council? Have you lost your damn mind? So, OK, let's go ahead and get into this because we got a lot to cover tonight. So I, I want to I get into the 17 points of 2030. 
So we're, we're going to try and keep this at, uh, at an hour here. So we're going to do our best. But to be honest with you, gentlemen, I think we could do two or three parts on this and we're still not going to cover all of it. So we're going to do our best here and try and keep it uh, within the time constraints that we have, because I know that not a lot of people have that much time. So when they listen to it, we want to keep it as compressed as possible. But anyway, okay, so they have set out the United Nations that when we say they tonight, we're going to talk specifically if unless it's someone other than the U.N., we will mention it. But when we say they, we're talking specifically the U.N. Can we all agree on that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Use absolutely. To, yeah. To save us time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Use the word. Absolutely. Yeah. So, OK. The 17 goals, they've laid out 17 goals for this. Uh, and essentially, this is for the entire world. This is not for just one country or a handful of countries or something like that. This is 17 goals for the planet. Now, for anyone that's confused on where we got this information, where we're presenting this information from, it's quite simple, really. We went to their website. It's there. You can go to un.org slash sustainable development slash development agenda. That's where we're getting all this information. So this is coming directly from them. So it's not like we're digging around on some, you know, dark conspiracy website or something like that. This is information that's out there that's freely available for anyone to go and look and to verify what we're saying and to follow along with what we're talking about. So just so you're aware, 17 goals for the planet is essentially what they've laid out. And they're saying that it's a, essentially it's a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet and improve the lives and prospects of everyone everywhere. Hmm. Well, it sounds almost like a utopia, doesn't it? Sounds almost like that pie in the sky promise. The 17 goals were adopted by all UN member states in 2015. I don't recall hearing about that. Do you? I don't remember hearing anything about that. Did we get asked? What? We have one representative that represents us that's appointed at an organization that has unelected people in it. They decided one person who was appointed decided that we were going to be a part of this. They say that today's progress is being made in many places, but overall action to meet the goals is not yet advancing at the speed or scale required. Well, I guess we needed a little kick in the pants then. Possibly, uh, I don't know, something along the lines of maybe, uh, oh, I don't know, a pandemic to get us to change our lifestyle. Maybe that, that could be it. 2020 needs to usher in a decade of ambitious action to deliver the goals by 2030. Well, what could do that? A new system of control, a new system of direction, possibly using, oh, I don't know, a pandemic. I'm just going to throw that out there. And you say, OK, well, you keep hammering on the pandemic. Why am I doing that? Because every single portion of these goals, every step of these goals, right, all 17 of them, every single one of them seems to have a provision for COVID-19 worked into them. So this is what they're using to drive this agenda. So it's essentially it's that they weren't getting anywhere fast enough with the climate thing. And it ended up bringing up a whole bunch of like fringe lunatics and people gluing themselves to train carriages and, and jet airliners and all that stuff. No one takes those people seriously. So they need something else. They need something else to get everyone involved and to drive that agenda. And that's what COVID-19 is. That's how, I'm not saying that it's fake. What I'm saying is, is it's being used. It's being exploited by this organization, this corrupt organization. So. Let's start with number one. Let's start with no poverty. Now, Bruce, you mentioned at the start of this thing, what do we call this? Is this Marxism? Is this fascism? What, what is this? Every single authoritarian rule, every form of autocratic rule I've ever read about in history has always promoted what? No poverty. We're going to take care of all that. We're going to eradicate all that stuff. And what happens? You end up with mass famine, mass starvation, mass homelessness and, and the like. So no poverty. Okay. Now, that's a pretty tall order. No poverty for the entire world. Do you have any idea what's happening to the third world right now because of all this nonsense we're dealing with here in the first? They don't have any import-exports going on right now. They don't have any ability to trade. The people around the world that are dealing with having their economy shut down because they're largely tourist economies, because we here in the established world travel to those countries and spend money there. Would you say that they're coming out of poverty or going into it further? I would argue with that it's the uh, the latter of that. So I I tell you what, uh, Marty, this is a sub. This is the one you wanted to start with. You wanted to start right off the top of this. Would you like to lead this one in, or or would you like me to? It's it's entirely up to you. Um, yeah, well, I've got something to say, obviously, because I always okay, have. The only way to eradicate poverty is to cure stupidity, because there's a lot of people on on the face of the earth who are poor because they are living in a country where they can't earn money. They may struggle to grow their own food. They may 
be under all kinds of different oppressions. Those are blameless people to a large extent, not entirely blameless, but to a large extent, they're blameless. But in the developed world, we've still got poverty. The UK has got this issue in some of the uh, urban areas where you've got child poverty that's higher in parts of Africa. And, And why is that? It's because they have grown up with stupid parents, parents who have got drug problems, drink problems, gambling addictions, all kinds of things that will prevent them, no matter what opportunity is put in front of them, from ever getting themselves out of poverty. So the only way to cure, to eradicate poverty is to cure stupidity in that particular sense of the problem. Can I give an example from the UAE? In the UAE, a man got married. He was given four plots of land, one industrial, one commercial, one residential and one agricultural. It was the, the idea was that he could build houses on one, which he would rent out. That would become part of an income. He could run businesses on another, again, quite often in partnership with expatriates and, and be a silent partner if he wanted to be and just take the money each month. The agricultural stuff, I mean, it's a desert country, but they've got good irrigation systems and they have farms where they grow fruit and um, raise animals. So that, again, was a, a self-sufficiency kind of element and industrial. So so you've got in you know factories, uh, production, all those kind of things happening on these parcels of land. But what actually happened was they quite often sold those bits of land to other people. So you had these people that were buying up these parcels of land and running businesses on them, on them or building houses. So elements of the Emirati society became poor by comparison and some of them very poor and actually lost their income because they didn't use what they were given the way they were meant to use it. And I think that's the problem with the world in general is that we've got some people who will always rise to the top and other people who won't. So trying to eradicate poverty is a nigh on impossible task unless you can make sure that every person on the face of the earth isn't stupid. There you go. Well, we got a lot of work to do if you say that stupidity needs to be eradicated. We got a lot of work to do because I see stupidity about every day, sir. What was it we uh, we say all the time? The shufflers? Yeah. The, <laughs> the shufflers? Yeah. That right there is, uh, boy, that's a driving force if I've ever seen one. Okay. Let's, uh, let, let's just run down here what they have to say about this. So they say that the number of people that live in extreme poverty declined 36% in 1990 to 10% in 2015. But they say the pace of change is decelerating and the COVID-19 crisis risks reversing decades of progress in the fight against poverty. Well, why is that? Why is that? Could it be the fact that we're listening to you fools up there in this organization that have caused us to remain shut down? Could it be that? I mean, I'm just kind of throwing out the obvious here, and it's for the reasons that I mentioned. Countries that largely depend on tourism, countries that depend on import-exports, parts of Central and South America, parts of Africa— parts of the Caribbean that, that depend on exporting their goods to the rest of the world. They don't have that right now because we're listening to idiots like this, the people that are driving stupidity, I might add, which kind of ties all that together, I think. But they say that um, more than 700 million people in or 10% of the world's population still live in extreme poverty today, struggling to fulfill most of the basic needs like health, education, access to water and sanitation, to name a few. Majority of people living on less than a dollar and 90 cents a day, live in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Worldwide poverty rates in rural areas uh, are 17.2%, more than three times higher in urban areas. Well, okay. And then, of course, they go down into all the the, the COVID stuff uh, with all this about how they're going to look at this as a response and recovery and and how they're going to build a framework for socioeconomic responses and all this nonsense. And you know what I hear? I hear exactly what you said, Marty. I hear stupidity. I hear mismanagement. And I hear people that are completely incompetent and they have no credibility. So how can you sit here and and expect to take these people seriously? They're the ones that are creating this problem. They're the ones that are exacerbating this problem at the moment. At the moment. You even had the head of the world or the UN World Food Program, which we're going to get into that here in a second. He came out in the beginning of all this and said, we can't shut down like this. We can't do this. You're you're talking about putting millions of people, hundreds of millions of people at risk that are not already at risk 
of starvation. This is mismanagement to the highest degree, to the highest degree. And now they're turning around and claiming to be the saviors of this. This this is completely counterproductive, in my opinion. One of the things which it it kind of fits into this, how are they going to get how are they going to bring these people out, right, uh, of poverty? Uh, as we were saying, poverty is more of a mindset than it is anything. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're, they're talking about things like they're wanting to more or less ensure that all men and women have uh, basically access to basic services, ownership, control of land, natural resources, so on and so forth. Um, I, where are they going to, number one, where are they going to get the money for all this? Uh, number two, how are you going to create businesses as a as a as an overreaching uh, government organization, right? How are you going to spur more business along? You're going to have to enact these different international taxes and uh, you know regulatory bodies that basically control the entire monetary system. I, I, I this one completely baffles me. Again, uh, I'm I'm the government's bad, and in this case, I have no words to express how bad this would be. But it's not going to do any good. I mean, so you do pay people more or, you know, you, you bring things when it, when everybody is on the same footing. Right. When everybody is making the same amount of money, the cost of bread goes up. It's no longer. So if, if you're making 50, if everybody's making 50 cents now and bread costs a dollar. OK, if everybody is raised up to that one dollar mark, you know, it doubles their income. Bread's going to rise in price as well. It's going to increase the price of bread and every other product on the market. So the more you bring people up, the more that goes up as well. So I don't know what the deal is here, what, what, how they're going to achieve what they're saying. There's two parts of this that are directly contradicting each other. One is the metric being used to establish what extreme poverty is, and that's living on or able to earn less than $2 a day. So that's one thing. So that's that's the other part that I heard one of you mentioned was ownership of land. Now, if you don't make any money, you don't sell any of your goods, produce, artifacts to anybody. If you've got enough land to grow food or catch food for your family, then are you poor or are you just living in a a, a different way that isn't controlled by money? Is Is what they actually want to happen is everyone to definitely be controlled by having to earn a certain amount, which means they've got to conform. They've got to follow the rules and have a job and work for somebody or or whatever. Or are they actually going to start dishing out land, which is what I was talking about earlier on? If you've got land, you've got a way of feeding yourself and your family and it's sustainable. So the metric they're using, which is less than a dollar 90 a day or, or, or whatever it is does that really hold up that's my question to you two guys well first i, I have a, a question real quick on on as far as the land is concerned um here in the u.s there's really not much land that isn't owned already so how would you give out land to these people exactly it's already owned well, it, by someone else I, it's the honestly, same here in europe as well i think it's i, I think you can look at it in terms of and, and we have to unfortunately we have to move on here but uh, i think you can uh, look at it in terms of kind of what they're doing right now bruce you see what's happening across rural america i'm just speaking the u.s here at the moment specifically because we know uh, what's going on over there you're uh one of your favorite institutions over there bruce the uh, bureau of land management they are mm-hmm, using mm-hmm. eminent domain to seize farmland and oh, yeah. i'm assuming that this is probably going to have a lot to do with the agenda going forward. Mm -hmm. And then they'll be able to, my guess is here, they're going to try and do what they did back in the Soviets era. They're going to try and vertically integrate everything and they're going to turn it into sharecropping, right? Of the new age. It's going to be uh, collectivized farming. And you know what that's going to do? Do you know what that's going to do? All that's going to do is it's going to cause starvation and famine. That's all that's going to do. Every time in history, when you go back and you look at what governments do to try and collectivize farming, it always leads to starvation and famine every single time because it's government mismanagement. With that being said, that takes us into zero hunger. Hmm. So the UN's going to feed everybody. They're going to make sure everyone's got plenty of food to eat. Well, then what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean you only get 500 calories a day? Because I assure you, you can't live on that. And of course, what do we have to push this, right? We've got COVID-19. Now, what does COVID-19 have to do with that? But nonetheless, this is, uh, and I'm going to go to you again, Marty, on this one here in a minute, because you've done some work with NATO and the UN in the past doing uh, certain types of uh, 
work, shall we say. And you've personally seen this kind of stuff uh, when it comes to World Food Program and UN food distribution, stuff like that. So we're going to talk about that in a second. They're saying here that under zero hunger, they say after decades of steady decline, the number of people who suffer from hunger, as measured by the prevalence of undernourishment, began to slowly increase again in 2015. But current estimates show that nearly 690 million people are hungry, 8.9% of the world's population, up by 10 million people in one year and by nearly 60 million in five years. The world is not on track to achieve zero hunger by 2030. Well, that's because we have mismanagement. That's why it's not on track. I've said before, and this has been proven, the United States and Brazil, those two countries alone, just those two, if they were properly managed, if they were properly administered when it comes to their agricultural production, those two countries could feed the world and have a surplus left over. Just to give you an idea, just those two countries. But you notice what two countries are under attack the most right now, apart from the UK? Okay, the the top three countries, Brazil, the United States, United Kingdom, those three countries. Why? Because we're not going along with the program largely. So you're going to seize the the farmland in the U.S. It's already happening under eminent domain. And so what are you going to do? You're going to turn around and you're going to do what I said. You're going to collectivize farming. You're going to vertically integrate the agricultural production. You're going to cause a nightmare of famine, you fools. That's all you're going to do. And on top of that, you're going to wind up with situations where what food you do have, what food you're able to produce, you're going to cause the mismanagement of that. And when I say the mismanagement, I'm going to go to someone here who has witnessed that mismanagement firsthand. So, Marty, what have you seen with mismanagement of the U.N. World Food Program? Well, uh, obviously, the U.N. offers aid uh, as as well as um, the policing actions that the United Nations go for. And in most cases, poverty in the world today is caused by armed conflict. So the UN comes in with its with its forces to separate warring factions. Uh, at the same time, the aid ships come in. And what I've seen in Somalia, although at the time I was in uh, Djibouti, which is a, a, a separate country close to Somalia, on the uh, eastern coast of, of Africa was that the aid ships came in, they were unloaded, and then lots of technicals and trucks uh, would arrive. Uh, technical by, by that, I mean land cruisers with heavy machine guns mounted on the roof, which belonged to the warlords. Uh, the warlords loaded the trucks with the aid. They then went and distributed that aid to the people, but to the people they wanted to distribute it to, and they became the saviors. They became the uh, you know the people who stopped their hunger. And it was the UN handing those you know, you know sacks of grain, all that food aid, over to the people that they thought they could work with. So using starvation and hunger as a tool to to do its business is nothing new to the un um Food's a weapon and you yeah so it's it's they've, they've basically weaponized food and i saw that happen with my own eyes that was quite a few years ago that was probably 30 years ago but i saw it happen and this this is what we're faced with this is to my mind to my cynical mind this statement from the un uh, about this this goal to eradicate hunger is basically a way of exercising more and more control if people were allowed to just go about their business in peace they'd be growing the food themselves but because there is war after war after war that creates the hunger that stops the farmers from producing that stops the distribution and people get hungry the un then steps in as the savior and gains more kudos and control as a result just real quick the, the basically the point i was getting at with the other um uh with, with the first one the only way for them to get the money to get the land to get the food all that stuff is they're going to have to have huge taxes they're going to have to have um sweeping um processes to to go in and like like we were talking with blm uh to go in and just take up the eminent domain and take up the land and say you know this is now for farmland this is the communal farming place or whatever and or or they're going to take up farmland and say this farmland is designated for this country it's food you know or or something to that effect it's it's mm-hmm. it's going to have to be an all all-encompassing all-powerful government to, to come in and do this i mean americans aren't going to really <laughs> We, we don't take kindly to this uh, kind of thing, but there has no, to be, 
if they continue with these crazy events and let's say, you know, we start seeing countries are starving, we start having issues here with food, you know, that sort of thing. And some big government comes in and says, hey, we got the solution for you. I can see a lot of people jumping on board. Well, and this goes to the bigger problem here where you said you you make an interesting point there. And to kind of tie that up with uh, with what Marty was saying there. Uh, where they kind of uh, they use food as a uh, as a weapon, more or less, how, how they weaponize food. You essentially if you have issues like this where you're talking about starvation, I mean, they're estimating that a quarter of a billion people. So 750 million people are on the brink of starvation. So they're saying that swift action needs to be taken to provide food and humanitarian relief to the most at risk regions. OK, well, what if you get to a point where you have, oh, I don't know, half of the world in a potential uh, risk of starvation. Well, what's that going to do? Those countries are going to collapse. And it's not going to be our areas that see those collapses. It will collapse, however, when they collapse the third world into the first. That's the point I'm trying to make with it. And I can very much see that as a real possibility with these people with the mindsets that they have going forward. Now, looking over all of these points that they put out, I mean, it sounds good. It sounds good on the surface, but once you get into the behind the scenes work of the UN and once you understand that none of these people are elected, none of them. This is what Marty's been screaming about with the EU for all those years. This is why the UK voted to leave. You're being ruled by unelected people. This is just you've <laughs> essentially with Brexit. OK, you left Brexit, but we're kind of we're out of the frying pan into the fire here. Right. That, that's kind of what we've turned into is is this because you've left an unelected body and you've jumped into a uh, you've jumped into bed with this large one now uh, that's going to dictate everything going forward. The next point here is good health and well-being. Well, that sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? Good health and well-being. Well, what does that mean? Good health and well-being means something different to everyone. To me, that's simply doing what I do. Right. That's eating healthy. That's uh, working out as much as possible, maintaining my um, my health in all aspects, mental, physical, emotional, you name it, right? All of it. That's maintaining everything. And that's maintaining my well-being, making sure that I have a comfortable lifestyle and things like that. But that's my responsibility. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility. That's not the government's responsibility to ensure that. The people that are out there that don't take care of themselves, that's not for the government to decide what lifestyle they have and how they live. If someone wants to go out there and wants to eat all kinds of burgers and and drink all kinds of beer or whatever, well, then guess what? You're going to have health problems. If you're going to be a, uh, a chain smoker on top of all that, that's going to make that problem even worse. If you're going to be someone that goes to a fast food restaurant all the time, you're going to have big problems. But someone like me, in comparison, hopefully doesn't have the health problems that that person is going to deal with. To me, I'm looking at this as good health and well-being. OK, that comes down to the individual, in my opinion. Right. That That's that's my opinion on that. But they say here uh, before the pandemic, major progress was made in improving the health of millions of people. How is that possible? How is that possible? That's certainly not the case in the U.S., I can assure you, because when I was in the U.S. 10 years ago, and I've slowly gone back to you know, take care of business and, and visit people and things like that over the course of the last decade. I can assure you people have not gotten more healthy. They have not. If anything, they've gotten worse. So how on earth can you sit there and claim to say that major progress was made in improving the health of millions of people in what country? In established countries or in countries that are less fortunate that have had the opportunity to raise themselves up? But how much have they been able to raise themselves up? Because as we're seeing here, with all of this, uh, it's not really um, it's, not, it's not really a big opportunity for your nation to advance itself with all of this. But they say here by focusing on providing more efficient funding for health systems. See, the government's going to give you your health systems now. And I know we disagree a little bit on that, Marty, and that's that, that's OK. But uh, I'm just looking at it from now. The U.N.'s going to take over your health systems, improve sanitation and hygiene. OK, that right there. Yes, that right there. I will agree with. I talked about sanitation and hygiene yesterday and waste collection systems and sanitation in society and civilization. When you have those things in society and they are brought up to a certain level in the society and the civilization advance itself to a certain point. Point, you can effectively manage outbreaks of diseases and epidemics and pandemics and things like that when you have improved sanitation and hygiene. That is true. Increased access to physicians. Uh, significant progress can be made in helping save lives of millions. OK, that's a pretty broad statement. But like I said, to me, I'm looking at good health and well-being. That's coming down to the individual. And on top of that, 
I also don't want to see a global health system put in, God forbid, because, again, that's what they're doing with this COVID. Of course, COVID is part of this as well. I'm not going to get down into all of the uh, the stuff they're talking about with all of this. But, um, yeah, it's like they're, they're using this as a as a driver again, uh, COVID as a driver to drive the uh, the good health and well-being. Well, of course, people want good health and well-being. But this is the suggestions and the guidelines that we were being told about from the, quote, experts at the U.N. to start with. And they've been incorrect. So you're now going to come in and, and dictate everything all over again. And you're going to have it as a as an efficient system driving it forward. Not in my opinion. No. We joke in my professional world about writing the uh, tasks and objectives of the job that we might be analysing. And if you're writing a task scaler for a doctor, for a general practitioner, if you just made task one, maintain a healthy population, you could legitimately have him machine gun any sick person who walked into his office. So that would maintain a healthy population because he'd be getting rid of all the sick, sick ones. This is where we have to be careful in reading everything and in detail about what this particular goal of the UN for Agenda 2030 is. Because they, they could so easily make a power grab here by using, by weaponizing health, by determining that if you're not living a healthy lifestyle, if you've got this condition, got that pre-existing condition or, or some, some other thing. Where I wanted to go with it is that having the United Nations decide what your healthcare is going to be or should be might not be the best thing for you. If it was a case of the general practitioner with a machine gun who's going to shoot everyone who's sick and maintain a healthy population that way, you'd have to look very deeply into how they've written what they intend to do. I think that's the point I'm just trying to make. So for clarification, um, when, when you're going over these, are you going over the goals after the list? Or before Sorry? page 18 has the, the list, right? Yeah, the sustainable development goals. Like it has a summary of what the goals are. And then just below that, it has a uh, three, one, three, two, three, three. Uh, uh, it it no. has a list of all the, the goals they're that talking is, about there. No, that is not what I'm doing. I'm going, I'm actually, I'm okay. not, I'm not looking at the paper. I'm on their website. I'm just clicking okay. them as we, yeah, I'm going down each one of them. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So, um, the, the healthy lives, yeah. Ensure healthy lives and promote well-being. Um, so some of the points they have here, uh, they're, they're wanting to reduce things like the global, they want to reduce the global, uh, maternal mortality rate to less than 70 per 100,000. Now, many of these goals I'm on board with, right? I'm, I'm, I'm cool with some of these goals on the surface. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get that clear in preventable deaths of newborns and children under five years of age. Um, they're want, wanting to reduce things like AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, and, you know, other, other types of tropical diseases, uh, hepatitis and so on and so forth, waterborne diseases. Now there's one in here that is a problem. Ensure universal access to sexual and productive healthcare services. Now, if you're not in the know and know what this means, this means abortion. Now, obviously, uh, this is kind of a touchy subject with some people because some people are all for it and some people are completely against it, say it's immoral. However, this is eugenics. This is literally the people that started abortion, especially here in America, the um, Planned Parenthood. The people that started it were eugenists. They believed in creating this perfect race. Uh, this is this is like Hitler level stuff, right? The Aryan race thing. There's countries that are vehemently against uh, organizations such as Bill and Melinda Gates, for example, because they push these ideas and these things. This is um, and and in a case example is uh, Africa, right? They don't like them because of this. So Bill and Melinda Gates actually give to a different organization that goes there and helps uh, solve malaria, you know, creating a malaria vaccine. Mm -hmm. And then there's other things in here that I, I have issue with, like universal health coverage. That means quite I, I want everybody to have good health care and access to it. At the same time, they're they're wanting they're going to tax you into oblivion to pay for it. To pay for it here in the U.S. alone, you would have to have like a 70 70% tax on everyone to be able to pay for it. And that would cover 80% of the costs. 
Um, so obviously there's uh, other issues that go along there, yeah. but well, anyway, that, that's just kind of the, you know, well, no, it, you, you raise an interesting point there. It says act, achieve act, universal, uh, healthcare coverage. Okay. All right. That sounds good. But it says also including financial risk protection, huh? Uh, okay. So yeah. All right. All right. And then right there down at the bottom of that point, it says, and vaccines for all given by who mm-hmm. <laughs> provided by who mm-hmm. bill gates no no i don't think so i don't think so there's a couple of bits in in this first of all this proves my point about you have to read uh what what they are writing is it 3.6 half the number of global deaths and injuries from road traffic accidents yeah, yeah. so what? if i was then yeah okay so that means they're then, not gonna they're not gonna allow you to drive cars which exactly. we knew that was coming anyway. Exactly. Exactly. That, so if I was then going to write the enabling objectives underneath my underneath that task, I'd say enabling objective 1.1, or in this case 3.6.1, would be half the number of people who are legally allowed to drive. That would instantly take yeah. half the people off the road and therefore statistically would probably reduce the number of deaths by half. Now, I was going to also say at, at this point, because I know we're short on time, the reason sexual health and you know Planned Parenthood are so unpopular in countries like Africa is because people's children are their pension. Now, if you're going to look at 3.1 in this list, and reduce the global maternity mortality rate to 70 per 100,000 live births. The only way they're actually going to achieve that is by screening people before they get pregnant and making sure that they are genetically able to carry a baby to full term and have a normal birth. Or they simply won't be allowed to get pregnant because that kind of statistic, 70 per 100,000, can only be achieved if only people who are absolutely certain of carrying a baby to full term get pregnant. That's the only way it can be achieved, you know, with, with any... And, and this, this, these are the things that the people we've talked about time and time again, Bill and Melinda Gates and their eugenic idea, this is what they're driving for. This is what they want to achieve. You can hear it echoed here. You can hear it echoed in in them speaking when when they do public interviews on TV or, or, or whatever. It's all there to be seen. They're not hiding any, anything. They're just counting on the fact that we won't read too deeply into what they're actually saying and just take the surface message, uh, which most of us agree with. We all want people to have better health. We want you know we don't want mothers dying in childbirth. We don't want infants dying from from childhood diseases that can be avoided. But it's how they're going to achieve these kinds of statistics within the next decade. Well, to be fair, Marty, I mean, if you just listen to what Gates said in the clip we played the other day, you don't have a choice. Yeah, you you don't have a choice. People don't have a choice. So we're just going to have to accept it and accept his way going forward. I mean, that's just how it is. So moving right along. I'm being completely sarcastic. Uh, Moving right along. I'm I'm aware, so I muted myself so you couldn't hear what I was saying. (laughs) Yeah, we'd have to cut that otherwise, I'm sure. All right. Um, I cannot believe how fast this is going. Uh, and when I say that, when I say how fast it's going, I mean the time. And we're on point four. So here's the deal, gentlemen. We're going to just continue this. Uh, we're, we're probably going to have to make this a three-parter. We're going to, because if we're moving at this pace on part two, then we're going to have to do a third one. So let's just plan on continuing this. We'll get to as much as we can today. We'll just plan on continuing this uh, when we get you back. Uh, I mean, we we can go with you saying the, um, the goal and Bruce and I coming back with a one-liner. Uh, um, you know what? I, honestly, I think it's uh, I think there I think it's too important to, to just gloss over it. That's my opinion. But um, I, I I totally agree. So if we have to go for two three parts, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's let's look at uh, point four here: quality education. Now, look, everybody wants quality education, but as what we are seeing in specifically the U.S., I I can't really speak to the U.K. Possibly you can, Marty, about education uh, because as as best of my knowledge, I think you know people that are in the uh, the teaching profession over there. But as it relates to the United States, I can say this: what the agenda is in the public schools in the United States is appalling. It's absolutely appalling. And you're seeing now, and Bruce, you and I wanted to cover this yesterday and we didn't. What we're seeing now, students' parents are being told that they have to sign waivers saying that they will not pay attention to what their children are being taught in online learning classes. What in the hell kind of road are we going down? What kind of agenda is that? Who in their right mind would even allow such things like that? 
We're talking here about an education system that is provided by the state and has become horribly corrupt. And they're teaching your children twisted ideology that has no bearing on reality. So if that's being done at the state and national level now, what on earth are they going to be doing at the international level? Now, they go through several points here about, oh, well, we want to make sure that uh, we have upward socioeconomic mobility and it's a key to escaping poverty and the progress we've made. See, they've talked about all the progress they've made, but they don't mention anything negative. Have you both noticed that about all of these things? There's nothing negative in any of this? Nothing? Mm -hmm. Everything's positive. There's not one negative point in any of this stuff. I mean, you can't admit fault for one single damn thing that you frauds do. You can't admit fault for any of it. You have to continue on. It it goes to my earlier point that I've said time and again. They don't admit fault. They double down. And this is doubling down. This if this isn't doubling down, I don't know what is. I don't. So well, it, there's that there's that saying, isn't there, that you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And yeah. so where's where's the eggshells in all of this? Where's the broken eggs? What they should do, uh, you know, when I put a report in, as well as all my recommendations for, for what uh, should be the trading solution, I also have to put a cost-benefit analysis in so that my customer can decide whether or not he wants to spend that much money. And that spend is these broken eggs. And there's none of it there. Education, the, the education systems in, in countries that have, you know, state education, such as the UK, it really is all about churning out people who are ready to go into the job market. And whatever that job market is going to require is a very difficult task to predict. So, yes, everyone should have equal access to education and promote lifelong learning. But if it's a state education system, then they should get a very good grounding in the basics, reading, writing, arithmetic. They should get some of those interest subjects so they can start to show their their aptitudes in, in certain areas for future careers. But at the end of the day, we don't all need to go to university. But in recent years here in the UK, they've, they've changed the law that you have to stay in education until the age of 18. It used to be 16. It's now 18. Unless you are going into some form of profession or apprenticeship. So they've already moved it by two years. People used to leave school at 16 and go into a job or go into uh, some form of trade. They're not doing that now. They're staying at school for an extra two years. The parents are getting extra support during that time. And a lot of these people are simply if they do go to university, they are going to be wasting their time because the degree that they come out with is virtually useless and the job market doesn't want it. So here, the UN, if they're going to do anything worthwhile at all, they they should be putting their resources into uh, working out what the job market globally is going to require. And that wouldn't be such a bad thing, but it would still be big government which we kind of don't like. You guys pretty much hit on it. I want people to have access to good education, but I don't want it. I don't want big government running it. In this part, there's not really anything that looks questionable. I mean, they're they're talking about you know equal schooling for uh, you know girls and boys. And they're also talking about education that's affordable to men and women for quality technical vocational you know uh training including university uh they're wanting good training and teaching for kids with disabilities i guess this is where it's a little little dodgy build and upgrade education facilities that are child disability and gender sensitive and provide safe non-violent inclusive and effective learning environments that's a lot of uh marxist uh, wordage there, you know, the the political correctness nonsense. Gender sensitive, so you're gonna you're going to teach our kids to be, uh, you know, uh, sexualized at a very early age. Is, is is that the goal here? So that you have kids that are, you know, six or seven years old questioning their gender identity. Non-violent. What are you considering violent? That's the next question. Inclusive. What are we including? You know, what, how big is that? What are you pushing for there? And effective learning. Effective learning. That can. Uh, huh, yeah. Uh, again, okay. it's very general. We don't know. We don't know what the. Um, That's so, just yeah, a go throwaway ahead. comment to give the rest of that baloney some kind of credence, isn't it? Uh huh. Yeah. 
Exactly. Uh, and no one wants their children to go to an education facility, a school, a university where they're going to be bullied. So that's the violence we're concerned about. And what they're going to be, if they are going to be bullied, what what's going to be the subject for the bully to pick on? Is it going to be their gender? You know, we've said before, we don't we we don't care what someone's sexuality is, what someone's race is, what someone's background is. As long as they're a good person, they deserve to be treated equitably. And mm-hmm. and that's all they should really be after. But reading between the lines and reading what's going to be below these points, you can see that that ridiculous snowflakery that yeah. uh, is insidious in society at the moment that's just gripping everything you can't say you know that's just ridiculous because you are immediately hit with the ad hominem arguments you're a racist you're a sexist you're transphobic you're homophobic you're whatever no i'm just a normal guy and i think what you're saying my friend is ridiculous but you can't say that because you will immediately be labeled because it as Johnny said earlier on, it's all about identity politics. And that's how, by by pigeonholing us, they are going to control us. They're just, they're encouraging and building up this identity politics. I mean, ensure that all learners acquire the knowledge and skills needed to promote sustainable development, including, among others, through education of sustainable development, sustainable lifestyle, human rights, gender equality, promotion of culture of peace, nonviolence, global citizenship, and appreciation of cultural diversity and of cultural contribution to sustainable development. That's a bunch of hogwash there. But to, to sum it up, gender equality? Uh, that, that's one of the things that, that stuck out again. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's more of the same, what we were just talking about. And it's just, that's, that's what they're doing is they're perpetuating this snowflakery. Well, look at it this way. My experience as a, as a man who's, who's been in two armed forces here in the UK, when I joined up, there were very few women in the armed forces and that those that were, were in support roles and they were not frontline. The way things have moved, uh, now there are women in just about every frontline unit of the armed forces. Equality is there. But what it does mean with gender equality and more women going into jobs that were previously held by men, it means there are less men who are in those jobs because women are taking them, which is, you know, if equality is what we the road we must go down, then that's all well and good. But the consequence to that, And that's generations of young men who haven't got into those jobs, who are now not able to support a family, who are not able to have the the, the nuclear 2.4 children. And these are the very things that BLM and Antifa, uh, under their Marxist way of looking at things, are trying to break down anyway. So, you know, we're achieving their aims for them through gender equality. I am not saying that we shouldn't have equal rights for men and women at all. I think we I think we should. But there are consequences to having that equality. And one of the other things is women are having children later in life. And there are higher risks the later in life that you have your children because they've had a career and then they decide, you know, the, the biological clock starts ticking and they have they have children. And there are greater risks health-wise. It's a terrible term, but they're known as geriatric gravida. So women over, I think, over 35 are classed as geriatric in terms of reproduction. So equality has consequences if we want it and we're, and we're going to have it. We just have to be aware of what those consequences are. You know, you brought up the, uh, you guys kind of transitioned there naturally into uh, gender equality, which that's the next goal here is gender equality. And they go into a wide array of things here. Now, look, as you said, and I can I can second and even third what you guys were saying there about equality. Of course, we want uh, equal rights for all people. And to be fair, I thought that's kind of what we had already. But instead, we have a bunch of people coming in and doing what you said, Marty. They're pigeonholing, they're driving wedges, and, and that's all they're doing. They're creating conflict where there otherwise wouldn't be. We have societies that were largely integrated, and now we've allowed these we've allowed these destroyers and these 
dividers to come in here and to start wrecking everything by introducing identity politics. See, this is what organizations used to do back in the 50s and 60s. Now we've just transitioned them and brought them up to the new age. And I'm talking about organizations that would come over from the East, such as Soviet Russia. They would say that we need to bring Marxism to the West, but wait a minute, we can't do that because all of your workers are happy. You don't have a giant underclass of people. So we need to do something else here. Well, enter identity politics. That's what we've had ever since. We've had the transition up to it. Now we've brought in organizations such as BLM and the like, and that's what we're dealing with. Talking about how they're going to end the Western prescribed nuclear family and the lot. These are Marxist groups. We've just brought them up and we've labeled them as other things. But now they're starting to take the mask off, per se. Yes, I mean, so to speak, in this case. But they start here with uh, end all forms of discrimination against all women and girls everywhere. I don't see how we haven't done that. I mean, our natural progression here in the West has allowed women's rights to flourish, whereas other parts of the world still don't have them. They still don't have them. And I understand that maybe they're directing that to those parts of the world. Okay, fine. You know, I can see that. But we shouldn't be made to be beat over the head with those things. Uh, Because here in the West, like I said, we've largely moved past that. I mean, even up to 100 years ago, you started off with uh, voting rights for women in the U.S. So uh, and I agree with this part here. It says eliminate all forms of violence against women and girls in in the public and private spheres. Okay, so you're going to end domestic violence. How are you going to do that? Isn't that what you said? Isn't that what you said? Uh, We've got guys like Gates that are running around giving public statements about and, you know, public conferences about how to um, get rid of aggression, shall we say? How you engineer aggression out of someone? Is that what they're talking about here? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what it sounds like to me when I read that, including trafficking and sexual and other types of exploitation. I agree. We've talked about human trafficking here before many times, and we really need to do it again. Uh, that's another. That's, that's a good subject to dive down into uh, because that kind of stuff, that needs to be ended yesterday. Not tomorrow, yesterday. All of it. But again, this still goes on in other parts of the world. They're not largely uh, paid attention to by these organizations. They're not called out. And the ones that get caught here in the West, Epstein and company, it gets buried most of the time. Uh, Or it's, oh, well, no, it's just taken out of context because it's those people at that level that get caught. It's those people at the international level that have the diplomatic immunity that get away with it. So they're they're complete hypocrites in this regard, in my opinion. But yes, it's uh, it goes on and on and on uh, down through here. Now, this part right here where it says ensure universal access to sexual and reproductive health and reproductive rights as agreed in the accordance with the program of action of the International Conference on Population and Development and the Beijing Platform for Action and the outcome documents of their review conferences. So the world has to conform to Beijing's one-child policy. Is that what it sounds like? Is that kind of what it sounds like? Is that what I'm taking away here? That one-child policy resulted in the death of hundreds of thousands of girl babies because families wanted boys. They wanted men. Of course it's still happening. And, you know, it's disgraceful that, um, as you mentioned earlier, that, China has has been put onto the uh, the human rights panel. Um, it doesn't deserve to be there because it's got very little regard for human rights. But in some ways, I'm I'm kind of thinking that they've involved them so that they can feel a bit guilty and start to clean their act up a little bit, maybe. But and it's the same with with this policy on you know the, the gender equality. Women are still pretty downtrodden in China, you know, and and a lot of the people being trafficked all over the world are Chinese women. It's a sad state of affairs. But no, Beijing platform and and the one child policy was disastrous and cruel and and caused people to murder because they knew they'd only get one shot at having a child. And if it wasn't a boy that was going to help provide for the family, then they were killing babies. Basically. And it's destroyed their um, demographics. It's destroyed their demographics. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, and so I don't know exactly what what it is now. Is it swung to about sixty percent, sixty forty? I think it's no. I think right now, the last I heard, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of about sixty five to one. That's that was that was what that's kind of what I was of the opinion on was sixty five to one. I could be mistaken. Sixty five males to one female. Correct. Wow. 
I mean, we, we've got regions of the UK where, because in actual fact, female the female of the species survives infancy uh, a lot better than the males do. They've they've got uh, a stronger immune system, and female babies tend to survive much more than than male babies. Uh, and in parts of the UK, it's like a ratio of three to one, or even six to one, six women to one one guy and globally i think the ratio is is kind of about three to one so if you've got a whole country especially an isolationist country such as china with a demographic of 65 males to one female they are going to very rapidly have to reconsider their one child policy aren't they uh yes i would say so bruce did you pull a demographic chart on china did you, did you get a uh, a ratio for us i'm assuming that's what you were doing yeah, that's what I was doing. Uh, it looks like, honestly, they've had about a 48% uh, since the 60s. So it's been uh, 48% of the population is male, roughly. Okay, so maybe it's not. Okay. As so, so, yeah, maybe we're slightly out of line. But where, whichever way you look at it, it's a really unnatural thing to do. Yeah. Um, and now, and here- also... Yeah, sorry, Johnny. Carry on. No, no, no. You're you're fine. I just I wanted to kind of round off here because I, we're we're over on time, and I know you probably have to go. Um, I do. The uh, the thing that that concerns me about this uh, this gender inequality this, this gender equality stuff is okay, fine. Like we we can't disagree on the fact that everyone needs to have equal rights, right? We're not going to disagree with that. But what I'm not seeing in any of this is. A qualification. For example, they're talking about women being discriminated against, for example, in uh, public and private spheres of say, and you could equate business to that. Okay, fine. I'm all for hiring women. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've always said that. And I don't care uh, about any any of the other stuff. I don't care who the person is. I don't care if it's male, female, trans, whatever. I don't care. If the person is qualified for that position, I'm going to take them. Right. That, that's me. I, I, that's the kind of person I am. I'm going to take them. I don't care about any of that other stuff. I, I don't care. But it's identity politics. They're trying to work into this agenda. That's that's my take on it is we're not looking at someone building themselves up as an individual to put them in a position where they are desired in that position, whatever it might be. They have to be able to put themselves into that position. Don't use the power of the state to advance yourself. OK, that's low. That is low. That is a position of a loser, in my opinion. You use the power of the state to advance yourself, then you're not legitimate at all. You stand for nothing if that's the case, right? I'm sorry. I get very heated on that because I see how this has gone in the past, and it's shameful. It's shameful that you get discriminated against as a business owner or as someone that, that hires someone. You have to hire someone based on what the agenda is rather than the qualifications of someone. Yeah. uh, Discrimination, um, sorry, positive discrimination is still discrimination. And, uh, you know, just to go back to one of my hobby horses, the worst case of tokenism, because the, the Labour Party decided to select Diane Abbott, who is quite frankly, the worst politician and has done more harm to the Labour Party than anybody else probably other than uh, Corbyn uh, and Corbyn's ideals and because she was part of his group. And she is a direct example of positive discrimination. She was female and she was black. And there are female politicians and there are black politicians who are absolutely brilliant. However, Diane Abbott wasn't. She was an example of positive discrimination, and that's what it gets you. Uh, Bruce, you want to round off on uh, gender equ- uh, gender equality there? That way we can uh... just uh, just to be a little little sarcastic here for a second. I, I loved your phrasing uh, when you were talking about this, uh, saying you didn't care what their gender or anything was. You would take them. Uh, I just want to point out the phrasing when we're talking about human trafficking as part of one of the problems that didn't sound all that great. And and, I'm sorry, I I couldn't resist. I honestly. I was going to say, Bruce, but that's where they forced you to. What Johnny said was perfectly legitimate and and sincere, but because of the gender politics and identity politics and the ad hominem arguments and and the accusation and the pigeonholing, that's the way your train of thought went for a little while when Johnny used the word Mm -hmm. take them. What he meant was employ them, welcome them into the business. That's what he meant as well you know, but that's the way they've made us think. 
Yeah, exactly. And honestly, as we've seen in the Western world is if you just let people be and you let society go, you know, you you have the basic guidelines and everything, right? The the basic rules and guidelines and the like here in America, you have the Constitution, everything. And, you know, it sets everybody on a basic path. We get all these things right eventually, right? You eventually get there. The the equality and all like we eventually get there. We don't need some overreaching, some big government telling us what we should and shouldn't do. Every time we've seen that in history, it's always come crashing down. It always causes a bunch of people to die, either from starvation, either from, you know, killing them off in the first place Take when they take power. Uh, it just it just be done with this, guys. Just let, let's let's go back to the whole, you know, individual freedoms and, uh, you know, govern yourself. And but uh, apparently we, we can't have that. We have to have these billionaires and, and arrogant people in these big positions saying, well, <laughs> what they say is big uh, positions when I we don't consider the UN anybody. I mean, they're freaking bunch of blueberries. Anyway, I, I, I honestly I, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of all that. I'm tired of the identity politics. I'm tired of all the exactly that we, we, we hire people based on merit. We don't care about their gender. We don't care about their what, what they identify as or whatever. Can you do the job? Yes or no? If yes, we'll hire you. If no, find a different job. And I, I don't see what's wrong with that. It's really that simple. It, I mean, it's it's not complicated. It's really that simple. But they make it complicated because everything has to be political. But unfortunately, and I was hoping that we'd get a little bit further than this, but next time we will uh, pick up where we left off. We will be picking up. We will get you back on uh, on Wednesday, Marty. So we will do part two on Wednesday uh, with you. Looking forward to that. And I hope we can get it all done. Maybe. Maybe if not, then I mean, we'll we'll be down for part three. But I think it's honestly, I think it's too important to gloss over. But anyway, uh, we are going to have to jump out of here. So thank you both for sitting down today. For those of you who have not, you'd like to please do give us a follow on the social media platform of Parlor. Love getting all your echoes, your likes, your comments, your feedback, uh, all the above. Uh, you can follow me over there at Anderson 3 You can follow Marty at Marty Foster. Also, if you would like to reach out to us and you do not want to reach out to us via Parlor, you can drop us a line anytime you like at tips at dynamicindependence.com. And we would humbly ask you to pass this along to friends and family. We're looking to grow our audience as much as possible. And your word of mouth and uh, your loyal listenership helps us do just that. We're just trying to promote healthy conversations within uh, within everyone's circles. And this is a topic that we have been largely looking forward to for quite some time. And we don't want to really rush through it. So we're going to bring it to you in several different parts. But uh, this is part one of UN Agenda 2030. And again, we tell you exactly where to go and we'll make reference to that every time we start. But if you could pass this along to friends and family, let them know, hey, this is the kind of thing that's going on behind the scenes do you because you're going to start hearing these words you're going to start hearing these terms very soon so the sooner you get familiar with it the better off you're going to be to try and and, and foment conversation within the local level to try and push back on this because that's where they're bringing it in is the local level so if you could pass this along that would be great thank you very much also for those of you that do rate podcasts we would humbly ask you to give us a rating on apple Podcasts or whatever respective platform you listen to your podcasts on if they have a rating system five stars would be a plus thank you very much marty bruce thank you guys for your time tonight thank you johnny yeah see you bruce see you man. have a good night buddy i will and from all of us here wherever you are in the world we thank you for listening because it's all of you that listen that make this all possible we love you and we love freedom and independence and together we'll continue to fight for those in the marketplace of ideas. So we'll see all of you tomorrow.